Acts chapter 9 is where we are. There's always a Sunday or two throughout the year where it's the perfect storm and everybody is gone that Sunday. And, and I can tell you that the people I know, we have some in Belize, in the Virgin Islands, in New York, and in Springfield. And so if you're watching, I'm sure you're on the beach watching us this morning. We just want to welcome you this morning, but they're just scattered everywhere. Man, I love the body of Christ, don't you? I love this church family. And so uh, we're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And so far, it's been quite a journey uh, over the last few weeks. We, we've seen the church begin to mobilize uh, into other parts of the world. And the catalyst for that has been uh, persecution. And this was coming from the religious and political leaders of the day who at this point, uh, who have been, trying, have been trying to threaten, intimidate, and punish uh, the early church into submission. And in the past, that's always worked. But the other groups that begin to rise up, that, that has always worked. They just, with a little bit of intimidation, they could shut down anybody. But it, it wasn't working uh, with these Jesus followers. In fact, it was doing the opposite. Uh, the, the persecution seemed to do the opposite and because there continues to be more and more converts, uh, a, a surge of new converts to, to the early church. Uh, but, but the persecution did mobilize them, it, especially uh, when the commands to stop preaching in the name of Jesus uh, turned into whips and to stones. And they began to torture and, and, and kill the early believers, uh, beginning with a man named Stephen. And really, it was his martyrdom that there was the flashpoint uh, for widespread violence against the church. It's what drove uh, the, the early Christians out of Jerusalem uh, back to their homes and faraway places. Last week, we, we followed uh, Peter and John as they spread the gospel into the neighboring uh, area of Samaria, and a man named Philip, who following the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, was the one uh, that God used to reach an Ethiopian eunuch, and that man became the first African to accept Jesus. And in all of this, we, we begin to see uh, the early church beginning to respond to and fulfill uh, what Jesus had called, called them to uh, in Acts 1, 8, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in every part of the earth. And so all of this is encouraging news. It's, 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 it's great news, but, but even as the gospel was spreading to the ends of the world, the, the world so too was the persecution. And in chapter 9, we're reintroduced uh, to a villain by the name of Saul, who you may remember was a bit player in Stephen's murder. Back then, uh, he, Saul was working from the shadows, leading a conspiracy on behalf of the high priest uh, to snuff out and to silence the Jesus people. And as we enter into chapter 9, we're going to see that he has ramped up his efforts. He's become a one-man army against what he considered to be the most dangerous heresy of the day, which was Christianity. And he was more passionate than Travis Kelsey on the sideline of the Super Bowl. In his mind, he's purifying the church. He, he's bent. He's passionate, so much so uh, that, that later in chapter 26, he's going to reflect back on this time of his life. And he says, he says these words. He said, I was convinced 
that I should do everything possible to oppose the name of Jesus. So I tracked down, arrested, and put many of the saints in prison and had them put to death. That, that was his mission. At this point, he is a madman. He's not just content with getting them out of Jerusalem. He wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. But all that's about to change. And then what follows is uh, one of the greatest reversal stories of all time. Chapter 29 tells that story. Are you ready? Good, there's two of them. So they're ready. Okay. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Pick up reading there. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested uh, letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for the cooperation and the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Now, just a, a side note here. Uh, Luke makes reference. He calls them the way. That, that is what they referred to as the followers of Jesus, most likely because Jesus came along and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so here we see uh, that, that, that Saul has expanded his search. He's heading 140 miles to the north uh, to the city of Damascus. And Damascus was a popular trade city, and because uh, of its size and location, not only uh, would it have offered the conveniences and the protection of a large city, uh, but it would also be the perfect place for uh, a perfect landing spot for the refugees, these Christian refugees who uh, have fled Jerusalem because of persecution. <clears throat> but it would also have been the perfect place for the church to expand. And so in an attempt to stop the gospel from spreading any further, Saul gets the necessary documents together that give him the authority to be able to go into any synagogue and arrest every person that's part of this group called the way. But instead of destroying the way, Paul, Saul's efforts are going to make a way uh, for the fires of the gospel to spread farther and faster. So Saul sets out for Damascus, which on foot would have taken about five or six days. Verse 3 says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around them. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? <clears throat> and Saul, Saul's response is this, who are you, Lord? And the word there for Lord wasn't because he thought it was God. It was, it was out of respect. I mean, when, when, when a light from heaven knocks you to the ground, you hear a voice, you say, sir. I mean, that's pretty much, who is it, sir? And the voice replied. He identified himself, I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Now, before we go any further, uh, I, I want you to notice something about persecution. That, that God takes persecution against his church and against his people personally. That, that, that Jesus doesn't see the church as an it or a building, or as, but, but as a me. And the reason uh, for that is because he has so united himself to his church that they are one and the same. And that's going to be a little bit confusing for Saul uh, but because remember, he thinks that he's on God's side. God's side. He thinks that he's helping God out, which leads to our, our first takeaway. And I'm going to stay here for a little bit. The, the takeaway, and it's for us, is this: is that 
There's no separation between loving Jesus and following Jesus and commitment to his church. There's no separation between following Jesus, saying that we are a follower of Jesus and commitment to his church. There's a lot of people these days that, that seem to be confused about that, especially since COVID. I mean, I talked to one of my neighbors uh, a couple of months ago that, that haven't been back to their church. They don't go here. They haven't been back to their church since uh, February of 2020 because they're still waiting for the COVID. I see them at grocery store and restaurants all the time. Notice that? You know, Back then, we couldn't go to church. We'd go to Chick-fil-A. It's not on Sunday. So, uh, Kerry Newhoff, a podcast that I listen to, he does a leadership uh, podcast that I listen to a lot. And uh, this week he talked about this. He said, most people who have stopped attending your church didn't leave. They just stopped coming. And he said, that's what indifference does. It, you, you stop coming, but you never really think of yourself as having left. But there are a lot of people today who identify as Christians that, that say they love Jesus, but they're marginally involved in a church. But according to Scripture, we are called to be a part and actively involved in the local church. And watch this. Jesus calls the church his bride, and you can't love Jesus and ignore or hate his bride. You just can't. I love what, what Tony Evans says about this. He says, I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he says this, but, but you also, what's also true is you don't have to go home to be married, but if you stay away long enough, your relationship will be affected. That's good. Matt Chandler said the design of God for the people of God is to be kept safe and to grow into all that he asks for them in the local congregation of faith. It's when there's an acknowledgement and understanding and a commitment to that, 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 that and, and when there's an acknowledgement of that, that I'm not going to pick up my stuff and run to the next church down the street when, whenever I hit a little bit of opposition or get uncomfortable. Instead, I'm going to lean in for my good and the glory of God and what God might accomplish in and through me together, through us together over a period of time. There's no separation between following Jesus and commitment to his local church. A voice from heaven confronted Saul with a question that, that changed his life. He said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not them, not the church, not my church, but me. And that pronoun uh, might have caused some confusion uh, for Saul because, again, he thought he and God were partners. He's purifying the church, and he's driven and passionate about it. What's driving that passion is that he's seeing one after one of his Jewish brethren, uh, brethren beginning to refer to a dead man as the Messiah, which violated everything that he knew about Hebrew scriptures. That dead man just spoke. And Jesus answers Saul's who question, and that answer alone would have been enough to change Saul from an unbeliever to a believer, but Jesus had something more to say, and, and what he's about to say is going to change the whole trajectory of Saul's life from being a persecutor to a preacher. 
New King James uh, inserts here in, in Saul's response. He said, so trembling and astonished, Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And in verse 6, Jesus says, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the rest of the story is hinted at in that word, do. He says to Saul, you're still going to Damascus, but I'm going to change your agenda. I'm going to change your to-do list. So, so don't cancel your Airbnb. And in other words, I'm not just going to give, I'm just not giving you a, a, a ticket to heaven. I'm, tang, I'm changing the whole purpose while you're there. I'm changing, giving, I'm giving you purpose for your whole life. And that's our second takeaway. Salvation isn't heaven someday. It's purpose for living today. A lot of people just kind of came down. They, they, they accepted. They became saved. They, they, they chose Jesus. And they came down. In a lot of churches, they filled out a card and presented a church, got wet in the baptistry. And that's the extent of them following Jesus. They're waiting for a ticket to heaven. Bottom line is God has got a plan and purpose for your life, for my life, for every one of us that calls upon his name. And so do, do you know what that plan is? Are you walking in that plan? Part of that plan, a large part of that plan is that, that you and I uh, have the responsibility to continue to press in and to know God, to continue to spend time in the Word, and to be gathered with other believers. That's part of every one of our responsibility. But beyond that, there's some other things that God has put you on earth to do. Verse 7 says, The men with Saul stood speechless, for they, they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Which explains... Uh, some of what happens around in, in, in conversion. I mean, you can be in a room uh, where, the, where the word is being presented, the gospel is being presented, the word is preached, and, and it may touch your heart and the hearts of some around you, but the whole vast, a lot of most people don't see anything. It doesn't touch them. And that, that's just, <coughs> just, just, and the reason I point that out, it's important for us that, that when the Spirit of God, when we sense the Spirit of God tugging at our heart, that we respond. Then we don't say no. Because if we say no long enough, Scripture teaches that after a while, that he'll just leave us alone. He'll give you what you want. Now notice that, that Saul wasn't seeking salvation. He was seeking to destroy those who proclaim salvation by grace apart from the law. But, but God was seeking Saul, and he first confronts him with his sin. And Paul's story is, is told more, two more times. We'll run across it two more times in our study in, in chapter 22 and 26. And in 26, we learn that, that the light was so bright. This is in the middle of the day. The light was so bright that it drove him and all the men around him to the ground. <clears throat> and then after Jesus had asked him, why are you persecuting me? It goes on to say that it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The goads. Dan, what's a goad? A goad's what a farmer used to use with the animals. It's kind of like a long stick with a point. I kind of like that, that kind of hook pointer thing that you have in your fireplace to turn the wood around. And, and so they would, they, would, they would control their animals with that. And, and every once in a while, the animal would kick against that. Did it hurt the goad? 
No. It hurt the one kicking against it. It says, you know, asking Saul, why are you kicking against the goat? Kicking against the goat hurt no one but the one who was doing the kicking. So that's what Saul is doing. In other words, he was resisting the Lord, attacking God's people, but the only person he was hurting was himself. <coughs> Saul's thinking that he's doing well enough on his own, that, that he's religious, he's serving, he's helping others. Jesus just identified him as an enemy of God, and he confronts his stubbornness and his pride. In other words, he confronts his sin. Because the truth is, Saul needed to realize the horror of his actions before he could be, ever be open to the gospel. And that's true for every believer as well. There must be an awareness of our sin that is an offense before God before there will ever be an openness for us to receive to think that we needed a Savior. Because without that, we'll think that we're good enough on our own, and we'll wear ourselves out trying to be good enough. But the Bible says that our best is like filthy rags uh, to a holy God, that none of us is righteous, no, not one. That, that we must see our hopelessness before God, before we see our need of God. The problem is that there's a lot of people these days that, that just don't think they need God. Saul, God, Saul heard God's voice, and he began to see himself for who and what he was. Verse 8 says, and when he picked himself up off the ground, he opened up his eyes. And he opened up his eyes. He was blind. And so his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, where he remained for three days, where he did not eat or drink. And so to get the full picture here, Saul the mighty uh, is now kneeling before God. Saul, the one who thought that he could see so clearly, was now being led by the hand because he was blind. In a few chapters, uh, Saul will change his name to Paul. You think of the word Saul, you think of the first king of, of Israel before David, and he was a mighty king. The name Paul means small. And so he's going from what people saw was big and strong to small. In chapter 26, he's going to retell this entire episode to King Agrippa, and he summarizes what he heard during those three days of blindness, and, and he says that, that he received a vision reassuring him that he would regain his sight. <clears throat> but he also is told that, that God is going to send someone to him to tell him what to do. And that person is identified in verse 10. It tells us that there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. This is the only place in Scripture where we will see Ananias, which makes me think that Ananias was probably just an average, ordinary person like you and me. And I think that way because it's kind of a common theme throughout Scripture that God uses the ordinary. God uses the, the people that most people look past to tell his story. Which leads to the third takeaway, which is this is part of our purpose. Part of our purpose is to help strengthen, reach, and challenge those around us. That God has saved us, not just for heaven one day, that he's given us a purpose for living. And part of our purpose 
<coughs> it's to help strengthen, reach, and challenge those around us. And to do that, you don't have to be gifted. You don't even have to be talented, but you do have to be available. Now, now the good news is, is and I think one of the Sunday school classes talked about that this morning, is, is that if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, that he has gifted you with a gift. And your gift is necessary for the body. I'm really pretty convinced that God puts in every local congregation all the gifts it needs for that body to function. But I'm also convinced that a lot of people, a lot of churches are handicapped because the gifts aren't operated. It's like your leg not working anymore. Ron, how's that feel? Pretty limited. See here, that Saul on his own would have never figured out what to do after his encounter with Jesus had it not been for a guy named Ananias to come along and explain his mission and introduce him to the community of faith. (coughs) And this calling was just as shocking for Ananias as it was for Saul. And you see that as you continue to read verse 10. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord. And and, and then verse 11, the Lord says, go over to straight street to the house of Judas. And when you you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying for me right now. I've shown him in a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and, and laying hands on him so that he can see again. And Ananias says, what you talking about? I mean, he's well aware of Saul's reputation. In fact, verse 13, <laughs> it's reminded me of a story this week of a student that, that in one of my first churches when I first moved to Blue Springs, and <clears throat> I've told this story before, and, and, and he, he had a stuttering problem. And, and there was a group of my leadership kids that I had found out the week before had been partying. And I mean, these are some of my frontline guys. And, and so before church on that Wednesday night, I got in my office and said, guys, this is what I heard. Is this true? And they, they, they owned up to it. They said, well, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you till, till Saturday night to tell your parents what you did. Because, and if you hadn't called, I'm going to call your parents on Saturday night. Just to hold you to it, to make sure you do what you're supposed to do. And there's this one kid who stuttered, and he said, but do we have to tell our parents? I see that, but verse 13, but Lord... Are you sure you got the right guy? I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name, verse 15. But, but the Lord doesn't, you see, the Lord doesn't change his mind here. He says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. God had created Paul, Saul, uh, with everything that he needed. He saw that Saul uh, was a brilliant man, that he would be able to communicate to kings, that, that he was also a Gentile, so he could communicate to them. <coughs> Verse 16 says, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We're going to come back to that verse. 
Verse 17 says, so Ananias went and he found Saul. And I love the picture here. Notice how instantly Ananias incorporates Saul into the body of Christ. Verse 17 says, he laid his hands on him and he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You think about that, Saul would have been clueless in, in what to do had it not been for a community of believers and a man named Ananias that took him along by the side. Verse 18 says, instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and he was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And verse 20 says, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues. And he said, he indeed is the son of God. Notice the response, verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Saying to each other, isn't this the same man who caused so much devastation among the Jesus followers in Jerusalem? And didn't he come here to arrest and take them in chains to the leading priest? <clears throat> Verse 22 says, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And it's that that activates the other part of Saul's mission, which involves suffering. Because some of the Jews, some of the religious leaders which Saul was a part of weren't impressed. So much so that verse 23 says that, that some of the Jews began to plot his murder. And so now the, the one who stood by the, in the shadows as, as Stephen was murdered for his faith and testimony is now added to the most wanted list for his testimony about Christ. The, the, the one who wanted to stop the preaching uh, in the name of Jesus will now carry that name to the ends of the earth. It's one of the greatest reversal stories of all time. But this isn't just a story about Saul. <clears throat> it first and foremost is the story about Jesus, specifically the, the resurrection of Jesus. According to 1 Corinthians 15, 8, this is the last appearance of Jesus in the New Testament. That reveals that the existence and the success of the early church and even the church today is totally dependent on the resurrection of Jesus. This is our fourth takeaway here, that without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. Our faith is futile. I mean, think, think about what would bring about that the change in this man named Saul. I mean, there was no convincing Saul that, that he was wrong. I mean, he was a master debater. He, could, he, he knew what he was talking. He was brilliant, and he could out-debate anybody. So what changed him wasn't losing an argument. And, and there's no way that, that he and the early Christians would have been willing to die for just an idea without there being some proof. 
I mean, nobody would die for a lie. What brought about change in Saul's life and what drove the passion of the early church was the reality of the risen Christ. The resurrection proved that, that he was the son of God who became the Messiah. And Paul's story reminds us that, that, it, that there is no one is beyond the saving reach of Jesus. Aren't you grateful for that? That, that if someone like Saul could become someone like Paul, there's hope for every one of us. In fact, Ephesians 2, I want to, that's assignment this week. Just go read that. Sometime this week, when you're just alone, just read through the, the, the Ephesians chapter 2, because Paul talks about it, said those who are dead, those who are held captive to the word and the flesh and the devil, those who are, who are objects of God's wrath, don't have to stay that way. That there's hope. Even those people can be made alive in Christ. Paul's story shows us that, that no one is beyond the saving reach of Jesus. You, you maybe think you're big and bad, and man, you just don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't, but I guarantee you, you don't stack up against so. Second thing it shows us is that salvation always leads us to action. Salvation should always lead us to action. I mean, Jesus didn't tell Saul, I, I want you to trust me. I want you to become a Christian so you can go to heaven. He changed Saul because he had something that he wanted Saul to do. In fact, it was very specific. That's why he told Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument to take the message, my message to the Gentiles. And what that, that says to you and me is yes, that, that, that we, when we come and we trust Christ as our Savior, that, that we are saved from sin and death. And one day we will join uh, with the countless others who've gone before us, worshiping the one who gave his life for us. Heaven's going to be incredible. But we're also saved to serve. We're also saved for a purpose. We were created for that plan and purpose. I love the way Peter says it in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, once we were not a people, but now we are a chosen people belonging to God. Why? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me read that again. That we may declare his praises. What we say. That we may declare his praises of him who called us out of darkness and walking in the light. And so a question I want to leave us with, how are you doing in that area? I mean, in what way since you met Jesus, since he has called you out of darkness, are you declaring the praises of God in your life? Not, not just when things are going well. Praise is a weapon. Praise is also a sacrifice in those times when prayers aren't being answered the way we want to be praying. You know, here's what I know about Kansas City. <clears throat> There's been a lot of praises going up this last week for some men who play with the ball. So some of us lost our flipping minds last Sunday night. I almost had a heart attack. Anybody? 
We're still celebrating the game. Jan is out of town this weekend. I've rewatched the game at least four or five times. It's incredible. I love to watch. A lot less stress when you watch it, knowing what the end is. I mean, we're giving high fives to complete strangers. We're not ashamed to talk about the Chiefs or Taylor Swift. But are we as passionate about declaring the praises of a God, of our God? In what ways are you telling others about the goodness of God, about the change He's made in your life, about the hope that He has given you? In what ways are you actively being a part of the local body of believers that Jesus calls His bride? Yes, individually, we all have a responsibility to grow in, in, in our faith. There is a place for solitude, for praying and studying God's Word and thinking, but we will not be able to go into the world and, and to be and to make disciples without the support and the encouragement of one another. The bottom line is we need each other. We need what each one of us brings to this house of worship. And if we don't show up, if we're not obedient in that area, if we don't all contribute and bring what we have, then we won't be as strong as we could be and we'll miss out on reaching the person or those people that God has strategically placed in our path. As a church, we are very literally the body of Christ on earth. God, I mean, God could have, he could have chosen a million ways to do that, but he chose to choose you and me to represent who he is, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And again, like last week, the question is, will you be the one to answer that call? Will you be the one that shows up? Or will you continue to kick against the goats? Will you continue to come up with excuses? Will you continue to think that your way is better? My prayer this morning is that perhaps you saw yourself, that we all saw ourselves in Saul's story. That maybe right now the Spirit of God is beginning to prompt your heart. It's not just Dan making you feel guilty. That, you know, that's going to last about as long as it takes for you to get to your car. But when the Spirit of God begins to tug at your heart and, and prompt your heart, when you respond to that, when you open the door for God to do something incredible in your life. So, so I, I pray that that's what's happening. The Spirit of God is prompting you. For some of you, maybe today is the day of salvation. Or it could be today is the day that, that you, are, you know Jesus, but you've just put off being who he's called you to be. You leave the responsibility to somebody else. You just kind of like to come in here. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people. Come on, you don't want to say this, but I just got to say it. There's a lot of people that treat the church like a one-night stand. Like fast food. There's more and more people that way. That's what the church has got. The people that, that that's why in the average church, 35 to 40% of the people that used to go to the average church before COVID aren't there anymore. They become indifferent. 
Well, what's in it for me? I mean, I'll do God on demand. I ain't sitting at home in my pajamas eating popcorn. Same thing. No, it's not the same thing. Man, I'm grateful for that. Frank, I'm, I'm grateful you're watching us this morning. I know you don't feel well this morning. I'm grateful that they have an opportunity. But you're not going to accomplish God's plan for your life on demand. Or in, a, in a, another place except here, being among the people of God. There's something that happens when we gather around those that are in need that we love and we lay our hands on them and we pray for them and we let them know you're not alone. Man, tell me about your week. I don't know about you. I need that. I'd die without that. When, I, when, I'm, when I'm not around that, you know what happens? I, I begin to think less and less about this place and about the people in this place. I get real self-focused. That's where a lot of us are. We're on a one-night stand where we get what we want and then we just kind of get on with life. Today's the day maybe where you didn't change direction. It's, it's time to make a U-turn. There, there are two ways to make a U-turn. I mean, you could do it like the Fast and Furious movie style where you're just going about 100 miles an hour and you just go around. Or you could be like that country song that says, you know, you know, I'll turn this rig around the next 40 acres. Saul was more of the fast and furious, but a guy named Timothy was more of a gradual thing. Here's what I know. Here's what I know about my life. There had to be a time. And, and, and the thing is, I love the testimonies. You have talked about this before. I love, the te- I love to hear the testimonies of people that God just radically changed. I mean, I was on staff with a couple of guys that God that literally served prison for murdering two guys with his bare hands. God changed his heart. For Billy Hacker, who was a drug addict, I mean, strung out on drugs, lost his family and everything, and he met Jesus on a street in Amarillo, Texas, and, and, and God put his family back together, and to this day, he's witnessing to people on, on the streets of Amarillo, Texas. In fact, when I was on the staff there, it was common for two or three in the morning, hey, Dan, I need you to meet me at church. I'm going to baptize somebody. I love those stories of the people that are radical. And man, I, I wish I had a testimony like that, but mine's pretty boring. I was born into a preacher's house. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing I had to repent of was beating up my little brother and talking back to my mom. Didn't kill anybody yet. There came a time, and you've heard me say it many times, but there came a time when I was older, when I was headed off doing my own thing, and God used a repossessed car and a broken engagement to get my attention, and I made a U-turn. So the question, last question here, what do you need to do to be in step? what God has called you to do. What do you need to do? What, what needs to change? Stand for prayer. Father, we've come to another time where we've, we've read your word and read the story and God it just... I just thank you for the 
for choosing me to be able to walk through this story. You just got to how you speak to me and during the week. And God, whether anybody gets anything here, God, I know what you do in my life and reminders of that. God, I also know what it feels like to present the truth of your word. God, with prayers of it changing, bringing life change in, in our lives. God, beginning with me, but even those, God. But I recognize what I've been reminded of this week, that, Lord, that there's no change that, change that takes place without the Spirit of God being the initiator of that. So, God, I pray for those in this room that are sensing the prompting of the Holy Spirit either to become a child of God to give their life to Jesus or a, a prompting to be in step with what you created them for God would you help them to say yes to that prompting Father, thank you for the reminder of, of what the church, and we are the church, not this building, not living stones, just, but, but we are the church. You've called us out of darkness to walk in the marvelous light, and we are your bride. God, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to not neglect you. Father, if there's areas where we've done that, I pray that you bring conviction in our life, and God, we do respond to that. I love the uh, just the picture of the prodigal son, God, after he ran off doing his own thing, God, but he came to the end of his senses, and he 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 responded back to the Father. God, that's the picture as we respond to you, that you have open arms to receive us back. God, what I know this morning, and I love that song, what I do know is, God, there's areas in my life, God, I need your help. I need you to rescue me. I needed to know this morning that there's still hope. So, Father, God, as this conversation continues between the Holy Spirit and us, God, would you help us to respond to you in a way that brings you honor and glory? For our good and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Talk to two or three people before you get out of here. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. God bless you.